You're listening to the Mindful Mama podcast, episode 101. Today, we're talking about how to really make change. Welcome to the Mindful Mama podcast. Here, it's about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you're thriving, when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm your host, Hunter Clark Fields, Mindful Mama Mentor. I coach overstressed moms on how to cultivate self-awareness in their daily lives to take family and life to a new level of peace and cooperation. I've been practicing yoga and mindfulness for over 20 years. I'm the creator of the Mindful Parenting course, and I'm the mom of two girls ages 7 and 10. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. This is another episode with my dear friend Carla, my monthly guest, Carla Nomberg, and we're going to talk about how to really make change. And this episode is, it comes from both of us. We both sent it to each other. We sent this article from David DeSteno in the New York Times, this opinion piece called The Only Way to Keep Your Resolutions. And it's really, really powerful. And it really goes against what we popularly think is gonna help us change. And it really really is vital and important to any changes we want to make in parenting or ourselves. Like you're wanting to stop yelling or if you're wanting to use more skillful communication, any kind of change you want to make, this is the important stuff that underlies it that you really, really need to know. So this is going to be a powerful podcast for you. I can't wait for you to listen. Hi, Carla. I'm so glad you're on the Mindful Mama podcast again. Hello. Hi, Hunter. It's great to be back. It's great to hear your voice. I'm sorry we, we missed up seeing each other in person, but here we are again. We've gotten together again. I'm so glad to talk to you. It's funny because, so it's January 2018, and we've been through the new year and all that has happened. And we both, when you're talking about what to talk about, we both, thought about this article that we wanted to talk about. I thought that was hilarious that you sent me the same article that I thought that I sent you. Yeah, it's, I read that article and I was like, Ooh, we have to talk about this. Yes. It's, it's an awesome, awesome article about resolutions, which I have, a, I don't want to say love hate because we're working on not saying hate in my house, but <laughs> maybe a love feel really strongly negative about relationship with resolutions. Hmm. Yes. Yes. And so by this time, like this podcast is going to go out like the end of January, maybe the 23rd or so of January, 2018. So by this point, statistically, if we've made any resolutions, like what, 98% of us have failed <laughs> our resolutions. Yeah. I don't think it's that bad, but it's pretty close. And in the article we're about to discuss, I think they mentioned that about a quarter of people drop their resolutions by around January 8th or 10th. And then if you look at sort of the course of the whole year, about 90% of resolutions will have been dropped at some point during the year. So, you know, most of us make resolutions for long-term change we'd like to see, and only about 10% of us stick with it. And I don't think it's that 90% of us are failures. I think that the vast majority of us are approaching this really hard thing in a way that is perhaps not the most skillful way to approach it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so before we go on, Carla, can you tell everyone who you are? Because we might have some new listeners here <laughs> sure. who might possibly have never heard your voice. So tell everyone who you are. 
Yeah, my name is Carla Nomberg, and I'm a clinical social worker, and I do parent coaching. And I've written uh, two books on mindfulness and parenting, and I'm currently working on my third book, which is called How to Not Lose Your Beep with Your Children. Uh, see what I did there, Hunter? That way you don't have well, to- Well, like, very well done. Skillful. Yeah. You don't have to put the warning because I didn't actually swear. But so I'm working on my third book, which is really about how to not lose your temper with your kids. And I live outside of Boston and with my husband and my two crazy cats and my daughters who are nine and seven. Yes. Yes. Cool. 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 And today we're to my dear listener. Thank you for being here. We are going to talk about this wonderful article that we both wanted to talk about, which is called how to keep your resolutions. And it's by David Destino. And it was in the New York times on December 31st. So you will link to, I'll link up to it in the show notes on mindfulmamapodcast.com. So you can check it out then. So we'll talk about this article, but give you the rundown. And basically he says, willpower is for chumps. Make change. <laughs> I don't think he says chumps. He does. He says chumps. It's right there in the subtitle, Carla. It totally is. Yes. Willpower is for chumps. To make change, you don't have to feel miserable. And yes. it's pretty exciting. And basically, he talks about how willpower is, you know, we all these things, all these books and et cetera, for years and years and years have these variations on a theme, which is the best way to increase self-control is to use our willpower. But that's not really working as are the statistics you shared show. And he contends that this view of self-control is wrong. And then there's all this research that backs this up. But I don't know. I think personally, when I think about the idea of self-control and I guess like when I really think about it, I guess the whole thing is kind of like you're fighting against yourself. Like willpower is kind of fighting against yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. And just when we frame it that way, which the author of this article does so beautifully. And I think the confusion is that you read the article in the paper and I read it online. And online, the title of it is The Only Way to Keep Your Resolution. So if our listeners are searching online, it's called The Only Way to Keep Your Resolutions Online. So, but yeah, Hunter, you nailed it. I mean, what the author talks about is that willpower is basically fighting with ourselves, that we want something right now, whether it's a suite or to stay on the couch instead of exercise or stay on the couch instead of meditate. And even though we know in the long term, you know, doing this healthy thing is going to be better for us, we end up in this little battle where we're kind of forcing ourselves and fighting with ourselves to get up off the couch or get over to the gym or put down the cigarette or whatever it may be. And what we know is that by the end of the day, that's exhausting, which is why, you know, so many of us eat our healthy salads and our fruit and our nuts all day long. And then you get to the end of the day and it's like shoving your kids extra chicken nuggets in your mouth <laughs> because you're exhausted. You don't have any more willpower. And so what he basically says in this article is that not only is it not super effective because you're fighting with yourself, but it, it's a bummer. Like it's, it's just a miserable way to go through life. And, and he offers a totally different approach, which I don't remember that he used the word mindful in his article, but it absolutely resonates with the practices of mindfulness. Oh yeah, I think so. I mean, like the, 
the point of mindfulness, you know, in so many ways, like the point of mindfulness is not to judge ourselves, not to fight with ourselves, you know, but to kind of accept what is in the present moment and et cetera. But it's really interesting because, I mean, mindfulness is about reducing our kind of resistance and our stress, right? And he points out that exerting willpower, like that idea of being gritty is stressful and has a cost to health itself. Like it's actually stressful to exert this willpower and it can be, you know, he says at higher levels, it can be a detriment to well-being. Like, you know, there's obviously moments where willpower is important and things like that is very helpful and can be a boon, but then it can be detrimental and it's a sort of stressful path. And he says that from an evolutionary perspective, it doesn't come naturally to us and it makes us, it's not really sort of the way we did things back in the day. And he points to this other radical notion, which is so funny because it's like, it is true. That is so much in the zeitgeist that we just have to, we have to do this willpower, even if it's like sort of small changes, we have to use our willpower. And he points out these amazing, this amazing research about social bonds and social relationships that, and things like gratitude and compassion, helping us actually make changes far more effectively than willpower. It's so cool. I love that. Yeah, he does cite a lot of research, which is great. And he's got links to all sorts of studies. I did feel like the article wandered a little bit because at one point he's talking about social relationships and how important they are and how we're much more likely like it doesn't require that much willpower necessarily to go help a friend move a couch or do something for a friend, which I think is true, but doesn't necessarily speak to the point, which he gets to a little later in the article about how to make these changes for ourselves when there isn't necessarily another person in the picture. And he points to three, I guess you could call them practices or perspectives. He talks about, like you mentioned, gratitude, compassion, and then he talks about pride. And I think what he means Mm -hmm. is not like he says, not hubris necessarily or arrogance, but he talks about just feeling proud of ourselves for the small changes we are able to make. Mm -hmm. And I think that he says, and I'm going to quote him here, gratitude and compassion have been tied to better academic performance, a greater willingness to exercise and eat healthily, lower levels of consumerism, impulsivity, and tobacco and alcohol use. So I bet right there in that one sentence, he's kind of nailed probably 90% of the resolutions most Americans have. And it's just a lot more of a pleasant way to go through life with this attitude of compassion and gratitude. Yeah, it's absolutely, it's so much better. I mean, just, I think about this idea of like compassion and gratitude, but then, so when you read this, how did you read his, how did you see his sort of like suggestions? What did you see as the suggestions for making them, making them come to life using gratitude, using compassion, using pride to kind of make our changes, any changes we want to make come to life? Like, do you have any changes you're trying to make this year? Oh, absolutely. And I wish he had put sort of more specific examples. The the examples he referred to were studies where they exposed people to situations in a lab that would make them feel, you know, neutral, negative or positive or gratitude or not, and then sort of asked them questions and saw how their answers changed depending on how they were feeling. And that's fine, but I can point to uh, specific examples in my life. And I think about this a lot. And certainly since I started a mindfulness practice and really learned about, I mean, I wasn't 
nobody taught me about self-compassion or compassion when I was a kid. And even through social work school, it wasn't a thing we talked about. And it was a game changer for me. And so here's a couple of examples. One of my goals, and I'm going to say goal, not resolution, because mm-hmm. resolutions are tricky, which I can talk about more later, is to really do a lot more writing this year, not just on my book, but you know, sort of in a daily, in a daily way, either on my Psych Central blog or just getting more writing out into the world or more writing in my journal. And so yesterday I was making my plan for what I was going to write today. And as we are recording this, I am home on a snow day with my kids and there's a huge blizzard outside. It's this bomb, bomb, that, bomb, wait, it's cyclone. A, yeah. bomb, That's bomb, bomb cyclone, which is apparently yeah. a scientific term. It's not. No, it, it is. is. Not a, no, no, no. No, the, the scientific term is like bombogenesis is the scientific <laughs> term. I heard our local reporter talking about this this morning. The scientific term is bombogenesis, and apparently the media has created this phrase bomb cyclone to make it much more interesting. Anyways, a lot of storm, snow, wind, even some like thunder snow. So yesterday, as I'm thinking about this, I'm like, oh my gosh, my kids aren't going to go to school and they're going to be home all day and I have to do all this shoveling. And how am I going to get my writing done? Like, it's just going to be really hard for me. And I got really stressed out about it. And then I thought, okay, first of all, I just want to be really grateful that I don't have a job out of the house that is expecting me to be there. And I have friends who are nurses and physicians and social workers who have these essential jobs that they have to go out in this weather and get to this hospital. And that there are people who are driving these plows and doing this really hard, really essential work for which I'm so grateful. And I just thought, I am so, so grateful that I can be home, that I have heat. And for now, we still have power. And either I'll find a time to write or I won't, but the gratitude really took the stress away that I was feeling. Mm. And let's say I get to the end of today and I don't have a chance to write, right? So I've missed this day and I was hoping to write every day. So I can get to the end of today and I can have two approaches. One is, oh, I screwed it up again. I had this resolution. I couldn't do it. I bailed. I didn't get my writing done. And we know, I know from my past experience that when I take that attitude, it is much more likely that I'll just bail altogether, just be like, whatever, the writing thing's not going to happen. I'll just squeeze it in when I can and I'm going to give up. Or the other approach I can take is responding to myself with compassion and just saying, you know what, this is hard. Snow mm-hmm. days are hard. You know, when, when I have to worry about all this extra work of clearing the snow and when I have my kids home all day, like that's a hard thing and it's okay if I missed a day. And so that attitude of compassion, reminding myself that it's hard, that it's hard for everyone and that it's okay when things don't go perfectly. I know from the research and from my own past experience that I am much more likely to sit down at the computer tomorrow to get back on track. So it really is these little things like this, whether it's, I think I've talked on this podcast before about how much I despise making lunches. And yet when I remember to be grateful for the fact that I live in a place where I have access to a grocery store and I have a refrigerator that can keep food cold and I have these nice lunch boxes and I have access to healthy food for my kids, it makes it much easier to just go ahead and make the lunches, which is a different approach from the willpower sort of forcing myself to do it, feeling like I'm in this gritty, yucky battle the whole time. So I liked this article because when he talked about gratitude and compassion, it very much with these small daily practices I find myself doing that just make things feel easier. It makes the hard stuff feel easier to do. Yeah. Yeah. And when we feel good about it, then we do better. I mean, I think this really also directly relates to parenting too, but what you're talking about, like when you're talking about the idea of 
practicing self-compassion at the end of the day. And he writes about this, and I think this is so beautifully, he says, beautiful, he says that these findings shows that pride, gratitude, and compassion, whether we consciously realize it or not, reduce the human mind's tendency to discount the value of the future. So what we do when we say, when we're using willpower and then that negative self-critical voice comes in at the end of the day, which is, oh, I totally messed up. I'm terrible. I'm a terrible, I can't do this. I never need these things. Any kind of like self-flagellations kind of stuff that comes into your mind that the inner critic tends to, tends to pop up for us, that encourages our mind to discount the value of the future, to kind of discount our ability to begin again. And this is what he's saying with this research is that actually, I mean, it's very much like that self-compassion research is like when we realize that it's okay for us to be human, we can begin again when we're not hard on ourselves, when we don't have to, when we can face instead self-talk and a mindset that is compassionate, then that gives us the comfort and the ability to begin again, you know, rather than telling ourselves that we can't do it. It tells ourselves, you know, we can, we can start again, which I love. And I think this directly relates to parenting in that one of the things we want to do often is not yell at our kids, (laughs) right? Like we want to not yell at our kid. And what he's showing here in this research is that when we have the attitude of gratitude, maybe gratitude that we can begin again, gratitude that we realize that not yelling is a good idea and compassion for ourselves, compassion that this is hard, that we have triggers inside, that we can be, you know, we're naturally biologically reactive and it's not like we're choosing, oh, please, I want to lose my stuff at my kid, you know, then with that compassion, then we can, the value of the future increases, like our value of ourselves in the future increases and we can begin again. And I think that that really is incredibly valuable. And I love that it's backed up by research. Yeah. And I find that when I am practicing gratitude and compassion, and for me, I don't keep a gratitude journal. I found it just was something else that I couldn't stick with. And I've got enough things I can't stick with. I don't need something else. But I just do it sort of throughout the day. And as we talk about in the neuroscience, the, or the neurons that fire together, wire together. So the more our brain does something, the more likely our brain will be to do it in the future. And so the more I just sort of wander around feeling grateful, which I end up doing more often than I realize, life feels easier and I feel less stuck. And that's a really different approach from sort of wandering around thinking how hard everything is. And that's not to say that there aren't times when life is legitimately hard and puts challenges in our way that are significant and painful and and confusing. And when that happens, that's when I really also turn to the compassion. And I know you've had, if I'm not mistaken, Kristen Neff on the show before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And she is a researcher out of Texas who wrote a fantastic book about self-compassion. And she really identifies these sort of three pieces to it. One is, you know, mindfulness, which is kind of noticing what's happening for us, being aware of our experience so that we can bring this compassionate stance to it. And then this idea of just kind self-talk, talking to yourself the way you would talk to a really good friend. And, you know, if a really good friend came to you and said, I really lost it with my kids and I yelled at them and I snapped at them and they were crying and I bit their head off and I feel terrible. 
you would not say to them, oh man, you really suck as a parent. You totally blew it. Like you wouldn't say that. So don't say that to yourself. You want to use this kind self-talk. It's okay. We all make mistakes. This is challenging. You know, you haven't had sleep in a couple of nights. You're worried about this. You're worried about whatever. So the kind self-talk is a really important piece of the, of the compassion. And then finally, the common humanity. I love this one. Reminding yourself that everyone is struggling, that this stuff is hard for everyone and that you are not alone. And I think that's so crucially important in this age of social media where we look at the pictures and it's like, everyone is so happy and their kids are so happy. And on this snow day, they're all doing awesome art projects and puzzles and baking brownies. Mm-hmm. And it's like, am I really the only person who's losing my mind? And the answer <laughs> is no, of course you're not. Everybody's losing their mind. We just don't put up those pictures. And so finding that, that place of common humanity. And sometimes it is so hard to have compassion for yourself. We just end up in these places, whether we're exhausted or we're facing a particular trigger that's just too challenging to overcome. And that's when you need to go find the folks who are going to show up with that compassion for you, like your peeps, your real buds who are going to sit with you and without even a whiff of judgment, there's just none of that. They're going to have that compassion and that love and support for you. And my wish is that every parent out there has that person in their life. And I know, I know that some parents aren't there yet. And I hope that you can find them that person who you can just dump it all at their feet and they can hold it for you and say, it's okay. You're doing the best you can. This is hard for all of us. And the more we have people in our lives who can do that for us when we need it, and the more we can do it for other people, the more we are practicing and experiencing compassion and the easier it will be for us to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it has to become a priority in our lives. And unfortunately, there's so many pressures in our society that kind of point away from compassion, right? Like there's like a very judgy, (laughs) we live in a pretty judgy society. Like I took Bill to New York over the break and took him out for his 40th birthday. Happy birthday, Bill. And we, we had an overnight in a hotel, which this is totally a digression. Anyway, we had an overnight in a hotel, which had an amazing view all the way out to the Empire State Building. It was great. Oh, that's awesome. But it was like this is freezing Arctic night. So after our dinner, we came back and, or I think it maybe it was in the morning or sometime we flipped on the TV in the hotel because we don't have like normal TV in our house. Like we watch stuff on the computer. Yep. And TV is so like, it's really bad. I have to say like (laughs) general TV is really bad, but there's all these like judgy shows, like the reality TV shows really, I think they encourage us, encourage our judgmental selves like big time, I think. And I think that in general, our society can kind of encourage this judgment and also self-judgment because this idea of comparison and stuff. So these ideas that Carla and I are talking about, and that we talk about a lot here on the podcast, this idea of self-compassion and things like that, you have to make an active practice of it and find ways to kind of fill your cup with that. And what you were talking about as far as practicing it also with other people. I mean, I thought this was such an interesting part of this article too, is that he said, he said, while these emotions enhance self-control, they combat another problem of modern life, loneliness, which is what you're saying too. Yes. And this made, this statistic made me so sad. From 1985 to 2004, the percentage of people who reported having at least one friend whom they could rely on and with whom they could discuss important matters dropped to 57% from 80%. That breaks my heart. Doesn't that just break your heart? 
that really, really makes me sad. And so that means that statistically speaking, dear listener, you might be one of those people that it feels like they don't have one friend with whom they could rely on and whom they could discuss these important matters. And so my compassion goes out to you and I encourage you to have a self-compassion about that because obviously you are not alone. There is that common humanity piece, like many people are feeling this sense of loneliness, but also like let's go out and practice these gratitude and this self-compassion with others as much as we can possibly do, you know, help us be less selfish, help us relate to other people and form those relationships so we can have those people who will be there for us to support us when we need it, you know? So I guess we have to go out and give what we want to receive, right? Absolutely. And, you know, it's one of the things I do most often in my, in my coaching practice is, you know, I think parents come to me because they're often looking for a fix. Like, what's the solution? How can, how can you get my kids to stop having tantrums? Or how can you get them to potty train? And it's like, well, if I had the 100% solution to that problem, I'd be on Oprah. I, I, you know, like, <laughs> if anybody figured that out, you know. And often what we need as parents, as much as information, and perhaps even more than information, we just need support and compassion because this this parenting gig, man, it's hard for all of us. It is hard for every single one of us. And it's hard at different times and in different ways. And for some of us, it's hard in more sort of public or visible ways, but it is hard for all of us. And I think that's so crucial to remember. But I was also thinking, Hunter, about what you were saying about making compassion a practice. And I think that that's such a beautiful and really important thing to dwell on for a minute that when we say practice, I feel like this is a word that's sort of gotten watered down recently. It's like, Mm -hmm. I practice yoga, which means I put on yoga pants and I do yoga. But when I use the word practice, what I mean is intentionally doing something with the goal of getting better at it. The way you might think about sending your kid to soccer practice, like they're learning skills. They're starting out not being very good at it, but they, they keep working at it. And even when they're not great, they keep going and they, they learn these new skills and they do them over and over again. And eventually they get much better at it. And so I was wondering maybe if we could talk for a minute about meta meditation and how that might help people get better at compassion. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So Carla's talking about metta, which is a Pali word that's translated as loving kindness. And it's a really beautiful practice that has been in the Buddhist tradition for a long time. And it's a practice of consciously cultivating a sense of loving kindness. So they put those two words loving kindness together because those are kind of the, that kind of mashup of those two words is what embodies it most in our language, right? Is like not just loving, but a sense of general loving kindness for ourselves and loving kindness for all people. Because truly, you know, as Brene Brown and others have, have researched and others have said, like, it's very hard for us to give what we don't have in ourselves and for ourselves. And so the practice of loving kindness is a practice where we we consciously cultivate that sense for ourselves. And there are so many ways that you can practice it, but basically it involves uh, repeating uh, some phrases that help you evoke that sense of loving kindness for yourself and for others as a regular practice. And this is something I do. So I sit in meditation in the morning and I have a little bell that reminds me that I have the last five minutes left. In the last five minutes, 
I practice loving kindness. And for many people, it helps to practice thinking about somebody who's really easy to love first, really sort of bringing that person to mind. And you might, some people even think about, can it be helpful to think about a pet or a spiritual figure or somebody who's just easy to love? And you bring that person to your mind and you send them these phrases, some phrases that work for you. And they may include, may you be filled with loving kindness, may you be well, may you be peaceful and at ease, may you be happy. Other phrases include just, may you be safe, may you be healthy, may you be happy, may you be free from disease and harm. You know, so we're just repeating these words to kind of bring together our brain sort of holistically to sort of cultivate that feeling. And then we also direct it towards ourselves. May I be safe, may I be happy, may I be healthy, may I live with ease directing these words then to ourselves. And sometimes when we do this, you can practice this at home. Dear listener, you can find a guided example on my website under the free resources as well at mindfulmamamentor.com. But when you practice this, it can feel awkward and strange. <laughs> because oh, get... big time. <laughs> I got to tell you, the first time I started doing this, I was like, you have got to be freaking kidding me. This is so... <laughs> insanely corny and all I could think about was Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live sitting in front of his mirror being like I'm good enough I'm smart enough and gosh <laughs> people like me and I was like I'm not doing it not doing it and now it's one of my favorites and Sharon Salzberg who's one of my favorite mindfulness meditation teachers says that she'll just walk down the street saying to herself may you be happy, may you be healthy, or some version of that, like as she's walking down the street in New York City, and you know what I'm thinking when I'm walking down the street in New York City? I'm thinking, oh my God, I hate this. Everybody's touching me and it smells weird. There's so many people and I can't decide. What am I? And I'm like a rubber band about to snap. And the last time I was in New York, I tried doing what Sharon said. And I was like, oh, the world is a much better place. So now I do, I also practice Metta. And for people who want to Google it, it's M-E-T-T-A. And I tend to go back to the neuroscience bit. Literally, the more you think a thought, the more likely you are to think it later at some other time. And so if we are thinking these thoughts, sending loving kindness to ourselves, to the mailman, to the cat, to the, like the wall, I don't care who you send it to. <laughs> it's just this practice of, of thinking these positive, loving, compassionate thoughts, that when I am in a regular meta practice, I find that I am much less likely to snap at my kids or think really pissy thoughts about them. I didn't say I never think that. I just said I'm <laughs> less likely to because I've literally started to do a better job of wiring these connections that more naturally take my brain to a place of compassion. And so if it feels really challenging or hard for you to have compassion for yourself in a truly difficult, stressful moment, that's okay. It doesn't mean you're bad at it. I'll tell you what I often tell my kids when they say they're bad at something. I say, you're not bad at it. You just need more practice. And so metta is a lovely way to practice it. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And, and just like what Carla said, whatever you practice grows more easily. You know, it becomes more easy in your life, just like little league practice and you get better. And it really is a muscle memory. It's like your brain, a groove in your brain becoming smoother and more easily, you know, the neurons more easily go down. And yeah, it's interesting because I've been really thinking about this idea recently of this idea, like love versus fear, right? And it's like, mm -hmm. 
our bodies are really wired to kind of either be in this kind of like bit of fear response, right? Like anxiety, a little fight, flight, or freeze, all that stress response, or the opposite, which is that I'm feeling trustful. I am resting and relaxing. And we have this tendency to go into this fear response, but we can work with this. Like once we sort of understand the way our bodies work, we can work with this and we can make change that changes, you know, not only habits, but over the course of time, traits and things. And, and this idea of walking down the street in New York and saying to yourself, hopefully not out loud, so you don't <laughs> really strange looks, is, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy. It's just taking us ourselves out of that I'm on alert, fear, alert for danger kind of response and into that I'm in this place of trust response or love or I'm just relaxing, right? Or just allowing ourselves to relax. And it's just kind of playing with our mind-body connection. And it's great. I actually love Meta loving kindness is a great practice for those moments like that, like the street in New York. One of the places I like to practice that, and you guys can try this, is the airport security line. (laughs) 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 So like I'll specifically look at like the guard. TSA agent. TSA person, yes. And I will say, you know, I will wish them loving kindness. May you be safe. May you be happy. And since I'm standing there, like I can't do anything anyway. Like you kind of have to shuffle along every few minutes. So it's a great place to just kind of not too obviously like glance at each person and say, you know, okay, may you be safe. May you be happy. May you be healthy. And then wish it for ourselves. And it really does like transforms the airport security line, like nobody's business. It's made for the airport. It makes life feel easier. It makes me feel less stuck because I know that my brain, the human brain wants to default to this fear alert response because that's what kept humans alive for millennia. Being able to notice, is that a rope or a snake on the ground? You know, is there something in that cave I should be freaked out about? Like this keeps us alive. But in modern society, in many situations, that part of our brain that's on that sort of constantly scanning, be prepared to flight, freeze, freak out, whatever, that part of our brain just gets kicked into overdrive more often than we need it to. And especially in parenting, man, when kids are really pushing our buttons, that's the button they're pushing. And when we can sort of calm down that part of our brain and our nervous system in our body that wants to bite their heads off, we'll be much less likely to do it. And I think that for many parents, not yelling at your kids is a big resolution. And even the calmest of us, even those of us who are up here talking about mindfulness and writing books about it, we're still going to bite our kids' heads off. And the only response really in that case is self-compassion. Yeah. And dear listener, if we're not convincing you, the research just shows it's more effective. It helps you. So use that. Use this research to your benefit. And and I was thinking about that idea of loneliness too, right? Like that he talked about that problem of loneliness. And I think that when we're then in a place where we're more relaxed and we're kinder to ourselves, more patient with our kids and things like that, well then And I think naturally people want to be around relaxed people, right? (laughs) Like it helps, it might help with that problem as well. So then it's interesting, you talked about writing more often this year. Yeah. I have a weird thing I'm doing, but I'm not- I love your weird thing. (laughs) I just, I love your weird thing. (laughs) 
So I'm not calling it a resolution, but I was also inspired by another New York Times opinion piece. Apparently this is like the key section of the, the paper for me, but I was inspired by this other article by Ann Patchett, where she talked about not buying anything for a year. Oh my, and my husband gave it to me and <laughs> I was like, what does this mean? If my husband gave me that, I would set it on fire. While staring him right in the eye, I'd be like, here's the flame. No, just kidding. Go ahead. And so then I shared it with some friends of mine and that kind of intrigued them. And so now myself and my friend and her husband, we all kind of have our own parameters, but we've decided like for me, I'm not going to buy any clothes in 2018. I have a couple other things. Like, I'm not going to buy any. But he's well in on this deal. He gave you the article. He's not doing it. No, he's not doing it. <laughs> Isn't that handy? I know. And it's so funny, Carla, I have to say, because I was like, yeah, this is cool. I have everything I need already. This will be just an interesting exercise and I'm totally fine with it. But then like on December 31st and 30th, you were like, buy all the things, all of them, click, 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 buy it all. Yes. That's what happened. Totally. I just was like, oh my God, I need new leggings. Ah, wait, I'm going to need this in the summer. And I just like... (laughs) <laughs> it was a little ridiculous. So now it's all kind of arriving at my house and I feel a little abashed, I suppose might be the word. Or a little awesome because leggings are awesome. Leggings um, rock. Let me tell you how I'm thinking about my resolutions, hmm. which I'm not making. This is my love-hate relationship. I know they don't work, but I can't stop myself. No, um, no, no. That's true. I'm thinking of mine as an experiment. That's right. Paper, not there a resolution. Is, an experiment is a great way to do it. And the other thing that I want folks to think about that I'm trying to think about is I think for many of us, we, we think about a resolution as like a new us, the new improved updated iOS system for <laughs> or whatever. Like I'm going to reboot. And then if we slip at all, we're like, oh, it's the old me. I screwed it up. I bailed on my resolution. Screw it. I'm going to buy all the things or whatever it is. And that's kind of like expecting yourself to get an A plus and that the only option is an A plus or an F. And with that mindset, then we all should have just dropped out of school in like second grade or whenever we got our first A or A minus or B or B plus or B minus or God forbid D. Like that's sort of an insane perspective, right? Like that's nuts. So what I'm going for is a B plus or a B with my resolution. Like if I can do this thing 80% of the time, Like I would feel super proud of that, right? So I don't want folks, and this is a mindset change for me too that I'm working on, but I don't want folks to think that if they, you know, on day eight, miss their trip to the gym or have an Oreo that's not on the diet or whatever, that all of a sudden they've screwed up because how many of us got A pluses in every single class all the way through school? Uh, I don't know anybody who did that. And yet somehow, you know, we got through school. And so can you hold yourself to a B standard and feel really like, like the author in this article says, feel pride about that and Mm -hmm. have, you know, remind yourself, this is the common humanity piece and the compassion piece that nobody gets a pluses on everything all the time. We just don't. And solid B's is legit. Like that's great. So can you, can you do a B job and still feel really good about it? Yeah. And I have to give a footnote to my husband for that. Like he was the one who gave me that metaphor that I think works really beautifully. I think that's a great metaphor. I really like that. And he, our author also talks about that, like take pride in those small achievements. And that's huge. I mean, I think that 
like when we set ourselves up, like it's either this or it's nothing. And I'm, I'm a crappy human being. Like then it, it really doesn't give us that bit by bit, that pride and that I did it for this many, you know, or whatever I did it this much, or at least I did it a little bit kind of thing. And that we really have to celebrate our wins. I do that with my coaching with moms and we do that in mindful parenting. And the first thing I say is like, okay, so what are the wins that you can acknowledge? Because it really is powerful for us to look in, at ourselves and practice this idea of saying, well, what did I do? You know, what can yeah. I acknowledge that's good? And that really does give you momentum to kind of go forward. So acknowledging your writing. Yeah. So that I have thought about that. And I like was talking to my mom and I was like, well, it's been two days and I didn't buy anything. <laughs> I got to like, tell you. She's like, great, honey. That's a real accomplishment. <laughs> I saw that article. I saw the headline. I'm a huge Ann Patchett fan. And I saw the headline and I was like, delete, not reading that one <laughs> because I'm going to feel like I should do it. And you don't. Sometimes I just need a new pen. I just do. I could go all year without buying clothes and that would not be hard for me, which is why I always look like a schlub. But sometimes I just need a new pen. So, and maybe Hunter, as we read in this article, you know, the gratitude and compassion lead are correlated with lower levels of consumerism. So this may be particularly helpful to you in this goal, which I think is an awesome one. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to definitely use that. I'm going to be grateful for what I have. And you know, it's interesting because it's kind of shifted my mindset already. Like the small little stack of sweaters that's just sitting on the hearth upstairs in my bedroom that has like a little hole or a little stain or like I'm kind of just waiting to bring them to get kind of repaired. And they were so low on my priority list have now bumped up. And I feel like that's good. I'm kind of taking care of things, but you should absolutely not feel like you need to do this or no one else, you know, this is just my own little experiment. But I I mean, I think this idea of whatever you're doing, just make it an experiment. This will be my focus for a little while. It's just this one small change, whatever it is, this small change maybe for you is a small change of writing two paragraphs every day or whatever it is, or if I'm sure whatever it is for you, or maybe your small change for the listener might be okay. Like, I've listened to Hunter and Carla talk about mindfulness for months now, and maybe I'll actually sit down and do it. And maybe if you do, I encourage you to do just three minutes, you know, just try it for three minutes a day and four or five days a week and see how that feels or try that loving kindness meditation. Just take a few minutes, make it something that's small, not like a a huge change in your being, you know, just a little tweak. Little tweak. Love it. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Well, I think that sums it up. I want to thank our lovely author, David Destino. I'm going to maybe tag him on, if I can find him on Twitter. Ooh, tag him. Yeah. That would be cool, right? And then he can talk to us about what he thinks. Yeah. So any closing words that you want to share, Carla? We didn't do any wins or challenges. I don't have any coming to mind. (laughs) I'm sure by the end of this snow day, I will have a few wins and many challenges. So we could talk about that next time. Yeah, no, I just want to wish sort of a happy new year to our listeners. And I'm saying that knowing that this podcast is going to go up at the end of January and just reminding people that any day, any moment is a chance to start fresh. And remember, fresh doesn't mean a total reboot. It means start fresh with a perspective of compassion and gratitude and feeling pride for what you've already achieved. So happy new year, happy new day, happy new moment to all of us. Amen. I love it. Awesome.
Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this podcast with myself and my dear friend Carla. It's eye-opening, right? We have to be kind to ourselves to make change. We, we practice gratitude and appreciation to make change. None of this harsh, mean to ourselves BS anymore, mamas. None of this. We got to stop this. So if you liked this podcast, I would love it if you could support the podcast if you haven't yet by subscribing and leaving a rating, of course. Okay, so confession time here. <laughs> Sunday, this past Sunday was my 40th birthday. And I, yes, it was yesterday. And I went for a hike with my family. I was talking to my husband because he just turned 40 a month ago. And, you know, it's this period in my life where I'm saying, okay, I mean, for me, I feel like I'm getting a real insight into this is it. This is it. How I live every single day. This is my life. I'm not like, I have everything I could want. I have this incredible family. I have this incredible life. I do this work I love. It's awesome. But you know what? I really have a sense of this is it, how I live my days and my everyday life. This is what my life is. What I give my attention to, this is what my life is. And this life, and I'm also getting, of course, a sense of this life goes by so fast. My daughter's going to turn 11. My gosh. And I just feel like I'm really getting a sense of the impermanence, right? Like we are here on this planet for such a fleeting time. And it's a shame for us to suffer more than we need to during this time. I mean, we all suffer, but we can make choices and we can do things to to suffer less to thrive and to to really be present rather than you know suffering and distracting ourselves from everyday life rather than being irritable and snapping like we can make changes thank you so much for being here thank you for filling yourself up i hope that you feel really good after listening to this podcast that's my dearest hope for you and i wish you a week of peace my friend namaste